Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today, we're continuing our devotional study series in the book of Psalms. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham. And we'd love for you to join us over there. We're going to carry on through the Psalms this morning. And this morning we're going to be in Psalm 65. Uh, so if you do have your Bible, open up Psalm 65. And I, I think there's something really profound in this psalm. In fact, I think we're going to see as we go through it that the way that the psalm is written kind of says something at the beginning. And then as you read through the psalm, you're supposed to then go back to the beginning and kind of re-examine what you already saw. So we're going to do that. Uh, so Psalm 65 says this. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed, O you who hear prayer. To you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for you so have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So I, I hope you can kind of hear that there, there are kind of two sections to Psalm 65. The, the first one is much more of a, of a personal uh, communication with God. You know, God, you're the one who hears prayers. You're the one who I want to come to. Praise shall be uh, given to you from me. Um, I'm blessed if I come into your temple. But then it kind of moves from personal to just this scene of all creation uh, pouring out joy and praise to God. So we read about what God has done for creation, about how he's the one who established the mountains, how he's the one who fixed the ends of the earth, but he's the one who stills the roaring of the seas. That's kind of what God does to creation, but then it kind of talks about how the creation responds to it. Uh, the pastures overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks. So we kind of have this image of the personal praise, what God has done in creation, and then how creation is all in this throng of joy for what God has done. Now, we're going to kind of go through this uh, uh, bit by bit, but I think that in this first section here, there's something really important to notice. I think that the, the, the second and the third sections of the psalm are supposed to make you go back and be wowed by the first so we're actually going to go through the second and the third sections first. So I want to look at them because then I want us to come back to that first section and see why is that so 
incredibly profound in light of it. So uh, I think this is the kind of psalm that you need to read through twice. So we read here in in verse 5, 6, and 7 that God is the one who established the world, that by awesome deeds he answers us with righteousness. You know, a God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. And it's making this image in our minds that's, that's really important for us to have, that God is the only God. God is the only one. He is the God of our salvation. He's the hope of the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth don't have another hope. But it also means that our one God is concerned with his whole creation. He's concerned with the ends of the earth. He's concerned with all of it. He's not just, I mean, just let's take a small example. Often in uh, evangelicalism in the West, we can think of salvation as merely being I get a ticket to heaven, now my soul is saved. And we miss that in the New Testament, so much of their understanding of salvation is that creation itself is being restored and we are part of that. It's much, much bigger. God is the hope of all the ends of the earth. He is the saving God. He is the God of our salvation. He's the hope of the ends of the earth and the farthest seeds. He's the one who not only is restoring his creation but in the very first place established it he's the one who established the mountains do you know anyone else with that power the psalmist would say do you know anyone else who has the authority to build mountains it's quite it's quite an astounding image and one of the things that's supposed to be stirring in us at this point is a sense of the majesty of god a sense of that the kingship of god the worth of god you know this is the one who established the mountains with his might. This is the one who stills the roaring of the waves. And you know, we see something as such a profound demonstration of that when Jesus wakes up and, and tells the waves to be still. He does exactly what the Bible says God does. He stills the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples even. You know, you might think, well, controlling the waves is one thing, but what about people? They're, they're a rowdy bunch. Well, God can still them too. And then this section kind of ends with this wonderful phrase, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. It's like as the sun rises and as the sun sets, it's like it's uh, an expression of God's joy over his creation. And, And so if a sunrise and a sunset is kind of, that's, that's all of creation expressing God's joy. Again, we kind of have this sense here of who is this? Who is it that can make sunrise and sunset, uh, or rather that has that as his own thing? It's, it's again, wow, this is God we're talking about, this sense of majesty. Wow, the sun rises for him, the sun sets for him. All, the, all creation was made for him. That's quite an astounding image. We can't say that about anybody else. There's no one else we can, we can speak of in that manner. And then in this last section we see, uh, the creation responding in praise, the creation joining in uh, and, and, and returning to God, the majesty and the worth and the glory that is, is owing to him. Uh, and so we, we read about, as I said earlier, the pastures overflowing uh, with joy, the meadows clothing themselves with the flock. You get this sense in which creation is this reciprocal um, dance of of God both pouring out his his own joy and his own praise but then creation sending it back and again exalting his majesty and so as we end in verse 13 we're supposed to have this image of wow God is a big deal 
And that shouldn't really come as a surprise to us. God is a big deal. This is the one who created all of creation. This is also the one who all creation is praising and all creation exists for. He is the hope of the ends of the earth. But then let's go back now to the first section because with that image of our mind, all creation exists for this God. Let's go back and read that first section again. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. That's fine. Praise is due to this God, the one who all creation uh, exists for. O you who hear prayer. Wow. Okay, so this God, this majestic, glorified uh, God who has created all things, hears my prayer. Wow. Then in verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, when my sins are too much for me to bear, you atone for our transgressions. You, you make, you deal with them. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. There's this image of this condescending, majestic God now drawing people in, drawing people into his presence, inviting them in, atoning for their sins, hearing their prayer. And the reason I wanted to do this section last is because if we start this with the image of this psalm, of this majestic God, this image of a God who invites us in to, to hear our prayer is an amazing image. I've often used this, this analogy to explain it. Imagine if you got to Buckingham Palace and uh, you saw all the tourists clamoring over the fences as always and uh, the guards are there and you, you stand at the fence and you kind of get someone's attention, one of the guards through the gate and you go, excuse me, can I, can I see the queen? And he goes, uh, yeah, opens the gate, closes the gate behind you and you walk through the courtyard and you're kind of thinking, that was easy. And you get to the front door and you say, um, can I, can I go in and see the queen? And then the person at the front door says, uh, yeah, fine, go ahead. So now you're thinking, what on earth is going on here? So you walk through the front door and you're walking down the hallway and you don't know where you're going because you've never been in Buckingham Palace before. So you find a servant and you say, excuse me, where can I find the queen? And he goes, oh, uh, just up the stairs there in that room up there. Oh, perfect, thanks. And then suddenly you walk upstairs and there she is and she goes, oh, hello, how can I help? You just think, what is going on here? How have I just waltzed into Buckingham Palace and now I have a presence with the Queen herself and she's just asking how she can help? It would be quite an, ex an incredible story. And if someone came back from a trip to London and told us that had happened, we'd probably be quite amazed. Something far bigger than that happens. See, the Queen is just another person like you and me. She simply has a lot more money, a lot more heritage and a lot more security. And yet, being invited into her presence would seem outrageous if it was that simple. Well, now we're being told that the God who invented everything, the God who created all things, the God who creation exists to praise, simply invites you into his courts to hear your prayer. That's what we do when we pray. We're not simply walking into Buckingham Palace. We're walking into the throne room of God. That's far more incredible. That's, that's far more profound. And yet, because of 
the familiarity of it, we often don't appreciate what a privilege it is, what a joy it is to be able to do that. And we, we really need to uh, let our over-familiarity be um, tapered, I suppose, by what the Bible is, is saying goes on in that moment. When you know what the Bible says is going on in that moment where you say, Dear God, Heavenly Father, in that moment something profound is happening. You are being transferred into the throne room of God to meet with the one who created all things and the one who for all things exist. I think that is such a profound reality that we can just simply say, Oh, you who hear prayer. Wow. It's amazing. That's the relational, uh, drawing, loving, communing God that we have. The one who isn't just out there. He isn't just condescending. Uh, sorry, he isn't just um, transcendent, rather. He, is, he has condescended to us. He is here with us. He hears our prayer. So, in light of that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the simple reality that the God who makes all things hears our prayer. And Lord, as we, uh, as we are stirred by what your word says, as we're stirred by the fact that uh, you are the majestic, glorious one, and yet you condescend to us. Lord, help us to apply that to our lives. Help us to be in awe. Help us to not have... Um, over-familiarity with what it is to commune with you. Lord, help us to pray with the full knowledge that as we pray, we are in the throne room of God himself. So, Lord, we pray. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen.